Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonsen, and today's guest on the show is Joel Pilgrim. I asked Joel to come on the show before I knew anything about him, based on a single Instagram post. A few weeks ago, Joel was foiling at Bondi Beach, and he actually saved somebody's life. I'll let him tell the story on the show, but had Joel not been on foil, things could have, probably would have, been very different. So I saw the post, I asked him to come on the show, and then <laughs> I did some research on him. Um, probably should be in the reverse order, but we got more than we bargained for. Joel is a flipping charger. He was an Australian lifeguard. He worked in Fiji on Nomotu as one of the boat guys. And outside of being sponsored by Lululemon, <laughs> which I guess we're just, I'm jealous of, they make actually really good baggies. Uh, he's as legit as you can get for a waterman. Professionally, things get even more interesting. Joel is the founder of Waves of Wellness, WOW, um, which is a health charity pioneering surf therapy intervention for mental health and breaking down the stigma and barriers to accessing traditional therapeutic support. So using the ocean as a, a way to better help people um, with, with therapy. I think it's brilliant. Um, this conversation gets a bit deeper than a normal foiling podcast. We get into the, we get into the good and bad of social media, the power of gratitude and lots of flow state conversation. Um, please let me know how you like this conversation and give Joel a follow at Joel Pilgrim on Instagram, P I L G R I M on Instagram. Enjoy this episode. Hit me with questions, comments, feedback. Thank you guys for listening, and I hope you are out there sending it. 2023, the year of sending it. Joel, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm feeling the festive spirit. I'm stoked. I saw your shirt. It's beautiful. <laughs> Christmas party season is upon us and uh, things are pretty full on at the moment, but how are you getting through everything? It's good, man. It's super good. It's about to head down to the Florida Keys for a week. So just it's a week of prep for that. But reason that you're on the show today, and we're going to have a ton of stuff to talk about, but I was very inspired by a post I saw going back two days ago that sounded like a fantastic story, and I thought it should be told post-haste. So can you start there for us? And then we'll get into who you are and what you do, and it's going to be a beautiful conversation. But I think that this story is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to dive in. Look, never would I have thought that I could look at my foil and say safely, that thing just saved someone's life. And that's what happened on Monday morning this week. It was the most wild way to start the week. And I was down at Bondi. The sun was you know, not even up yet or just over the horizon actually. And it's pretty active. There's a hive of energy in the mornings down there at Bondi Beach. It's quite busy. There's a really great, beautiful social community, but the lifeguards weren't set up yet. We're talking 6.15 in the morning and across the beach, there was this absolute wailing for help. 
And all of us looked at each other in the lineup on two separate banks because a lot of buddies have talked about this since. And we've said, what, where was that? We didn't know where it was coming from, what was going on. And it was actually a guy who had been, he's an Uber driver, he'd, you know, new to Australia, he'd come down to the beach early in the morning after doing a delivery on his motorbike and he'd gone for a swim. And he basically jumped into the water and got swept out the rip. But he'd actually travelled about probably 70 or 80 metres from where his belongings were on the beach. And he'd actually put his helmet below the tide line and it was getting washed away with his phone inside it. And he wasn't even aware of that. That was the case when we got back to land. So just a really like sincere lack of awareness around the ocean. And what was really shocking was hearing that screaming for help, but not knowing where it was coming from. So I looked to the beach and being a lifeguard for many years myself, you know, in, in a previous world, I have this ocean awareness of, okay, where's that coming from? Especially before 6.30 when the lifeguards aren't there. And I know that you're aware of the foiling situation here where we need to get out of the water when the lifeguards do set up. So I was about to wrap up my session and I looked to the beach and I thought, okay, if I can't see that person, I'm going to look for other people around to see what they're doing, what their body language is saying. And there was two elderly people on the beach that were really awkwardly dancing and waving their arms around as if they just didn't know what to do. And I ended up saying to a buddy, someone's in pretty bad danger here, I think. We need to get out. We need to get there. We need to get there. I remember saying that. And basically, I turned around. It was like a three-foot day. It was a good swell. But I turned around on this little sloppy one-footer and just scrambled onto my board and just got onto the wave and got up on foil, took flight, and, and just started pumping towards these people. And they were about 100 metres away from me. And when I was getting towards them, I had my arms in the air going, like, where are they? Where the fuck are they? I can't see them. And they were pointing like right in front of me and I still couldn't see them. And it turned out I couldn't see him because he was going underwater. Oh. And he was literally like seconds away from becoming unconscious and just swallowing too much water to be able to be conscious. So I got to him within the nick of time. And I remember there is no chance in hell that I would have reached this guy if it wasn't for being on a foil. Because my buddy who I said, let's get there, took about four times as long to paddle over and get there. And he got there as I was getting out of the water and dragged my foil up onto the sand. So it was super intense and I jumped off my foil. I kicked it away, ripped my leg rope off because I knew I was pretty close to the sandbank and that was just going to become a bit of a, an obstacle when you've got this, you know, item in, of surf craft close to someone who's, you know, in the waves, et cetera. Kicked it off. Someone had come in and grabbed it by then and then my mate had got a hold of it afterwards. But I rolled him onto his back, provided him like a bunch of reassurance. It's okay. You're safe. I'm here to help you. And he was so distraught like the look in his eyes was something that i'll never forget like the feeling that someone has that they're about to die is just completely displayed through their eyes and it's i mean i've seen it before but it's just you never forget this feeling and that 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 look so basically i rolled him on his back pulled him into the shore i was swimming for probably around about a minute or two and then got onto the sandbank pretty quickly and then ended up standing up. But he didn't even register the sandbank was there and I was dragging him in a hell of a lot further where he could have walked. But he said to me, oh my God, like I was praying to Allah because I thought I was dead. Like I, there was no question. He thought he was gone. And uh, when I got to him, he said, oh my God, you're my angel. <laughs> Eric, I've never been called an angel before. That's for sure. <laughs> There's a first for everything, right? That's, I mean, that's a heavy 
and incredible story. He gave me goosebumps halfway through that. When you got to him, you know, because it's always a risky thing grabbing someone who's in that situation. Was he panicked enough to where you were in danger as well, or was he pretty pretty chill and let you rescue him? He was panicked, but not to the point where he would pull me under. And that's the usual response, that someone would just climb, climb all over you and put you underwater. I was ready for that. Like I, I took a big gulp. I was, but might I add, I was absolutely gassed from pumping to him. <laughs> but I remember just going, all right, I might need to put my board between me and him if he's too full on. So I still had attached my leg at that time. And then I took a deep breath as if I, I was going to need to go under and hold him up. But he was able to float himself pretty independently, but he'd just given up and he was going under a couple of times and that's when I got to him. So we get onto the sand and we're, we're talking through what his experience of it was. And he came down there thinking he was just going to get into his knees. And he had no concept of rips and he went to the spot on the beach, which, and this is the challenge, right? It's, a, it's such a contrast because people who don't understand the ocean will look at a rip and think that is the safest place to go out and swim because there's no white water. It's not going to be rough. Whereas it's obviously the worst and we know that. But being in that rip was one of those things where he just lost all control. And that for me was one of those times where, oh my God, if, if it was just any set of circumstances differently, it would have been a very different situation. But he ended up going to hospital after you know a potential dry drowning incident where he swallowed a lot of water. He was coughing up a lot of water. And what happens when people are consuming salt water, it dries out in the lungs over time. And then the body will pump fluid into your lungs to try and rectify the situation. And so much so that you could potentially drown while on land. And there isn't a lot of awareness around that. So as lifeguards, we were trained about all of that stuff in the day. And it's really important to always just go and get medical support if you're not sure of what's going on. And have you gotten a follow-up? Is he okay? I, I really regret not getting his number. He took a video, the lifeguards came over and had a big conversation and talking to him. And he took a video on his phone filmed by the lifeguards of him. And I wish I had have got it. It would have been a great keepsake. But I mean, I had the news calling me up going, can we interview you? And have you got footage? And I was like, no, but I, all I wanted to know is did the hospital see fluid on his lungs? Because that's the lesson that I want to take out of this. To that extent of experience is someone going to have adverse conditions. Yeah. I mean, that would be a good data point to know. I mean, I think this story is tremendous. I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about relative to the story right now. I think the first is, you know, Jeremy's been on the show, Josh alluded to it as well. And I know that in Australia, foils are looked down upon, not allowed to surf. I mean, I think Bondi is one of those places where you're not allowed to, you just said it, you're not allowed to surf during the day. Have you had any conversations with lifeguards after the situation? I mean, have they expressed any Thing positive about you know foiling is a foil podcast i gotta ask that question yeah i'm mates with both the lifeguards that came down yeah. and they were doing hand signals and you know jolly you're all right you know is everything good as they're racing down the beach towards us but they also are the ones that actually get it like they understand it's often upper management and the decisions that are being made beyond the beach that are the fear factor responses and I do understand where the public come from when they are scared of foils. They look dangerous, they look sharp, but really what they don't understand is that you need to have 10 or 20 years of surfing experience yep. to be able to nail a foil. So yep. you don't even entertain riding one unless 
So you've got some amazing ocean awareness and skills. So straight away, you're already skipping 98% of the surfers at Bondi. Everyone comes to Bondi Beach, just surf Bondi, man. I want to get out there on my foamy. And it becomes the most gnarly situation in the morning beyond 6.30. You've just got foam boards, fiberglass boards flying everywhere and fin chops and gashes and stitches and all sorts of shit. And that is so far removed from what actually happens in the foiling world because we know what we're doing. And we also wouldn't take off on a wave that goes anywhere near someone that's going to wipe out. Yep. Yep. I hope this story can permeate a little bit and maybe help the way that foils are seen in, in your area, or at least give it some positive light. Cause I, th- I, you know, as a, probably a pretty libertarian person, I just find it such a hard thing to take that people are limiting what people can do in the ocean, which I feel is the most free place on the planet. It's hard for me. Mm, for sure. And what we know is quite safe mm. is always going to be perceived by someone who doesn't have education around it. So we do have a, a duty of care or a responsibility to educate those people. But I agree with you, Eric. I think that this opportunity or this experience has really opened people's eyes to, oh shit, like that was a really positive experience with a foil. And the lifeguards know that it wouldn't have gone that way if I wasn't flying above the water. Yeah. I gave a lot of thought years back to the difference between fear and risk. And if you haven't thought much about the two and how it pertains to your life, I think it's a very interesting thing to give a lot of self-reflection on because the things that we're scared of sometimes aren't really that risky to us and things that we think are benign are where we're taking a lot of our risk. And this is a macro example of that conversation right there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Fear versus risk is a pretty big conversation. And my experience of it is that if you are scared, there's an element of fear there because you're questioning your ability. Obviously, fear is healthy and we have fear as an automated response as, as mammals, right. but we also know what a risk is in a true sense and a calculated risk. And if it's a calculated risk and you've done the numbers, you've got the ability and you have done the training, you know, Kui and Jeremy Wilmot, like we all surf that wedding cake wave that you guys have talked about a bit. And we've done a lot of water time, but we also know that we have what it takes to be able to swim in one kilometer shore with no support out there. Yep. So if there's no skis then and, and it's the absolute end of the line, then we know that we've got the ability to get in. And it's the same for a downwind when the wind goes offshore and you're on a five meter kite, or should I say winding, and then you're literally just having to work your way into the shore. But you don't do things that significant and that gnarly if you don't have the ability to be able to get out of that situation yourself. Yeah. So let's let's dive into who you are and what you do, Joel, because I think that, you know, I didn't know really anything about you when I saw the post that you wrote the other day and I was like, oh, this would make a great show. And then I peeled back the first layer of the onion. I was like, oh, wow, this is going to make a, a really interesting show because you have a foundation or you're the head of a foundation called waves of wellness, which is, and I'll let you explain it, but, you know, tying mental health, helping people through the power of the ocean and surf. And I think that's something that any surfer 
is probably, you know, somewhat self-medicating in the ocean all the time. <laughs> and maybe while we're drawn to it so much, maybe we're the most deranged of all of everyone out there. And that's why we just live so close to this. But I mean, I think it's a beautiful thing and I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah. I have a really interesting job. I love my job and it doesn't really feel like a job when I love what I do. The easiest way for me to describe it is in a past life, I was a mental health professional. I was an occupational therapist working in a mental health ward. And I got a, an opportunity to take one of my young guys surfing who had experienced first episode psychosis. So really what you're talking about here is young people between the ages of you know 24 and should I say 14 and 24 who had experienced their first real touch with mental ill health. And my job as a therapist was to do a whole lot of different counseling, education, you know, psychological support to get them back to that previous level of functioning. So early on in my clinical career, I had an opportunity to take this young guy surfing and I saw the juxtaposition between what the clinical mental health setting was doing and able to unfold with their well-being versus the natural environment and getting outdoors. Now, I don't talk a whole lot about that past life too much because Waves of Wellness Foundation, we call it WOW, is where I spend a lot of my energy for the last six years. But that actually really, I think that really helps me come at this conversation with two very different perspectives. Being a, an ocean lover and a waterman of, well, I've surfed for what, 28 years now. And knowing what that does for my own mental health and well-being. I find it really special to be able to share that with other people and let them know about the powers of the ocean and the healing abilities and all of the energy they can get from that, but also social connection, mm -hmm. like genuine social connection and bringing people together from very different walks of life who would never, ever consider the ocean as an option for them, yet we have it on our doorstep. Now, wherever you're listening to this podcast around the world, we're foil frothers and we use the ocean as our happy space and place. But a lot of people don't get that opportunity and we take that for granted. So one of the most beautiful things for me is seeing our WOW programs where we bring veterans who have been to Iraq with PTSD and bring them down to the beach to, to give them that chance to learn about mental health and do that in a fun environment and use surfing as a way to cope with that. So really, if I'm going to give you a quick snapshot of Waves of Wellness, it's a mental health charity in Australia focused around surfing as therapy for mental health and well-being. So it's run by a mental health trained clinicians who are, they wear two hats, basically. We call them our unicorns because they're surfing instructors with an intermediate level of surfing or more, but they're also qualified mental health clinicians who would otherwise work in a hospital or a private practice. So they're creating these beautiful magic moments on the beach in a way that we call it health by stealth because it's getting in and having these conversations with blokes like you and I who I don't know about you, Eric, but 10 years ago, there's no fucking way I would have put my hand up and said, I need help, even though I needed help. So I was caught up in my own self-stigma around mental ill health. And it meant that there was no way I was going to access the support that I needed at that time. So instead of having that stigma and that barrier that prevents people from really accessing the support they very much need, we're breaking down all those walls and we're doing it in such a laid back way that the ocean and the, the beach environment is where people come to play. And I would probably, I would go so far as to say that Australians would consider the beach and surfing as being a rite of passage. It's a very Australian quintessential sport and activity, but it's so much more than a sport. It's a way of life. It's a religion for some. Surfing is my religion. I'll tell you what, 
but it's also a way to, to bring people together to take away all the labels, the masks, the titles. You don't know who is a CEO or who is someone who's sleeping rough when you're out there in the ocean. Yep. And I just love it. Such a beautiful equalizer, right? Yeah. I ran a surf camp in Costa Rica and did a lot of private coaching for about three or four years after I had a real job and got rid of that. And I think that is one of the most beautiful things about the ocean is that it didn't matter who you were before you walked into the, into the water. It strips away so much of that, you know, lifetime of ego or baggage or whatever it is that you're coming in with. You have to exist in an, in a space with a skill set, then the ocean just doesn't care. It's I think it's really great for people to feel that way, naked in front of raw power, you know, in a way. Yeah. And when you've got a woman who's experienced domestic violence and trauma to come down into a space where they would never see themselves as accessing that to experience that for the first time mm -hmm. or it's a young aboriginal person who would say oh that's a white person's sport because it's really not equally represented the way it should be but no matter whether it's the over three thousand people we've put through programs over the last six years or in what 10 locations around australia or if it's our brothers and sisters in the surf therapy world there's now 135 member organizations are part of the International Surf Therapy Organization, which we co-founded in 2018, which means there's a lot of players around the world using surfing as therapy to bring people together for many different ways and means. But the common denominator is that the ocean is a really powerful place to create huge psychological and social change. And it's a vehicle which we use deliberately to connect people and bring them together, to share common experiences, to normalize the fact that mental health struggles are everywhere. They're all around us. And in Australia, the statistics are one in four people will struggle with mental health challenges. But I would say that everyone, literally everyone struggles with mental health challenges at some point in their life. And it's just the fact that we need to talk about it more so we know what the real statistics are. And how much do you think is the ocean and how much do you think is just the newness of environment as a catalyst for change? Well, no questions asked. The outdoor environment, regardless of what you're doing, yeah, is well and truly documented and proven evidence-based practice that it is effective. So whether it's blue space or green space, there's some beautiful things that happen with the body. The ocean itself, I think, is particularly special because of the things that we've talked about with flow state, with biology and the chemistry of the brain and the positive and negative ions, the you know, endorphin release, all of the things that can happen from other environments. But then you just have this feeling of, you know, that, that old FCS saying, only a surfer knows the feeling. Like, yeah. I, I really believe that because we can't explain what we feel when we get out there. I struggle to put into words what happens for me when I get to the ocean every day. Like I have a really stressful job and running a national mental health charity you know, comes with its pros and cons, but I know that I need to get to the beach every morning to start my day the best way possible. Otherwise, I'm a cranky bugger. And my partner, she'll, Vanessa, she'll be like, just get out of the house and go surfing and then we'll talk. <laughs> and she knows, just send him to the ocean and he'll be better. But for me, that, that idea of knowing that feeling, I, I can't communicate what happens. It's a sound more than a, an explanation. As soon as I jump into the water, I've got this really 
it's, it's almost not OCD, but it's a pattern in which that I will open up to the ocean in the morning and I'll dive in. I will make sure that I only put my head underwater when I've got the first green, clean wave. And then I'll open my eyes underwater for the first time I put my head under. And then I come up and I'm like, oh my God, all right, the day has started. This is awesome. And it's just, fuck yeah, let's get after it. And you can't explain that to someone, right? No, I mean, it's almost religious in in context. And, you know, like baptism is a way that I've always looked at, um, you know, just the immersion in water and ocean. And not that I'm super religious, but I just, you know, I just feel like there's just something so cathartic about it. And I remember, it's funny because I don't remember specific waves. I've surfed so many sessions over the years, but the things that I really remember are the time periods when I have been out of the ocean and for one reason or another, and then walking back into the ocean after a month or six weeks or at one point, like six months. And those being just walking into the ocean. Yeah, I remember how it feels. You get goosebumps walking in and yeah. I can't ever, I can never live that far from the ocean. Knock on wood. Sure. <laughs> I hate saying that. Well, out. Mate, I'd be in trouble. I, I was supposed to be a country kid. So my parents grew up in the Hunter Valley, which is like proper inland rural vibes. Mm-hmm. And it was only at the age of five that I moved to the ocean. And I am forever grateful for my parents for that because that changed everything for me. But you asked the question around, is it the actual ocean or is it a normal space? I do believe that the required state change in everyone is to disconnect Mm -hmm. and get away from whatever that stimuli or overstimulus is in their life, whether it's the pressure of work, whether it's overexposure to technology, whether it's negative, unhelpful relationships in your life. The state change that happens in the ocean is that you disconnect from all of the garbage that happens on the land. And when you're out in the ocean, nothing else matters. Now, I actually, I call the ocean like the shoreline, the waving shoreline as it's lapping up on the shore. I call it the bullshit barrier because as soon as you step over the bullshit barrier, nothing that's going on land can get to you. I love that. You know, I think about it. I've got kids 14 and about to be 16, about to drive, which is terrifying. And, <laughs> you know, we they grew up in Costa Rica as close both born in Costa Rica and we moved when they were what eight and eleven I think and they got to grow up as close to nature as pretty much anyone in our day and time can and then coming back to the states and the prison system of schools and I know there's a lot of good things like we're in actually a great school district and the kids are learning a lot but I just feel like they're just locked in a concrete room eight hours a day or whatever it is, seven hours a day. And just how unhealthy that is for our souls. I mean, how much thought do you give to just modern society and mental health? I think about that all the time. Oh, I could talk for three hours on this, Eric. <laughs> I'm a big <laughs> no, passionate <laughs> supporter of the outdoors. Yeah, let's dive in. Look, Costa Rica and the wilderness is pretty out there, right? It's a pretty upper echelon, beautiful place to be. And there's a lot of nature there, but that's a big difference to the classroom and that idea of being in the classroom for six to seven hours a day. I often say that if we're wanting solutions for things that we haven't come up with yet, that we haven't got the answers to the mental health crisis that's going on, we can't keep looking behind us because history is a killer for innovation. So if we're thinking about education, 
if we're thinking about health, if we're thinking about connection relationships, I do believe that the outdoors is the place that we need to harness. We need to do more things outdoors. It was because I was in the white sterile hospital environment working for eight or nine hours a day that I started to realize the negative impact that was having on my mental health. And for people who were, you know, putting into mental institutions and saying, you need to stay there, it's not necessarily the solution moving forward. There's definitely a role that the mental health service plays. And it does help people that are at the real crisis end of mental health challenges. But my experience is that as soon as you take away all that white flickering fluorescent lights above your head and you replace that with the natural vitamin D coming from the sun and you've got the sound of the birds and even the kids playing on the sand, the water lapping at your feet, that is where people feel at ease. And when someone feels at ease, they're obviously going to be able to maintain positive mental health more. But people aren't thinking about what they need to do in the prevention and management of your mental health and well-being. They aren't treating mental health and physical health as the same thing. So you talk about what am I going to do for my physical health? Oh, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to pump weights or whatever. But what are you going to do to build mental muscle? And what are you going to do for your brain to build the same amount and hold the same amount of respect for your mental state as your physical state? I'm a big advocate for the fact that we need to hold those two in the same esteem because when you think about well-being as a holistic thing, it is both connected and you cannot have one without the other. And the outdoor environment, in answer to your question, is a place where if they had a classroom outdoors, you're going to get far better outcomes, I would argue. If you have a wilderness activity or an excursion or something with the kids to be able to remove themselves from that normal space and behavior, then there's going to be far more beautiful connections and things come to life that they wouldn't experience without getting outside and making the most of what's on our doorstep. Yeah, I completely agree. You've surfed all your life. You said 28 years. And I see through looking at your clips and I, I follow you on Instagram and we're about to dive into social media because I think that's going to be a, another interesting one, but you are an incredibly accomplished surfer. Some of the pictures I've seen of you at, I think the, the Cape or some of these other waves, just insane. How did you get pulled into foiling? I find that sometimes folks who are the best surfers have the hardest time wanting to abandon the skill set and put on the white belt. What gave you the beginning of foil curious and then foil brain and how did that happen for you? I have a twin brother and he and I have spent a bunch of time out at Namotu Island in, in Fiji. Okay. And for him, he picked up foiling a couple of years before I did. And he was always saying, you should really get into this. And I was, you know, in the big smoke in Sydney, that was the city life and things were pretty full on for me. So I didn't have the ability to travel as much anymore with work as a lifeguard or holidays over to beautiful destinations to have those perfect foiling conditions. So I was surfing with him a bunch of years ago and swapped him and grabbed, jumped on his foil. And I just remember feeling so foreign. And I, I thought, how do you love this? It just feels so, ugh. And it's because I just had no idea what I was doing, but it was also like a generation two, it was an old dog. And it was one of those times where I thought, no, you can have that. 
And it wasn't until the hype continued and he was pretty early adopter, my brother Bo. He's he's taken on foiling and he's sponsored by Cloud9 now and he's doing some really cool stuff. But back in the day, I remember just feeling like I've got so much on my plate. Like I don't have time to invest in this. And Josh Kuhl and I spoke about this the other day. You just really need to invest the time to be able to make the commitment. And if you can't, it's not going to be as enjoyable. And I knew that. And it just took me so long to connect to it and get there over the hurdle, if you will. But once I did, I was like, my God, okay, I get it. And I've heard you speak before about that one time you took flight and you were like, wow, okay, there's no looking back, right? I think you dropped out there for a second. Yeah, my apologies. I was just thinking about the surfing side of things and the transition over. For me, it doesn't matter what craft I'm on. I just, I need to be by the ocean. It's my happy place to just be by myself and to be with my own thoughts. And the idea of surfing out there and floating around was one thing. But then when I connected with that feeling of taking flight on a foil, the flow state was so much more immense. And it was such an intense feeling that you'll go twice as long without thinking about anything else. You'll go twice as far in the one wave and it just everything about it was just this special feeling which i thought i need to feel more of that and there's a lot of people chasing that feeling whether it's alcohol drug addiction you know risk taking whatever that is i think there's a lot of work to be done to be building really healthy habits where we can really develop a positive relationship with ourselves, but the activity of doing something healthy rather than unhealthy if you get what i mean Absolutely. You mentioned flow states there. How do you relate to flow states? How do you define them? I would describe flow state as being able to lose every other item on your checklist, to lose yourself in the moment and be in a place and space that allows you to be in this feeling of bliss. And the word bliss is the the part that always comes up for me when I'm thinking about flow state. Because I'll go for you know, maybe 30 minutes or more without really registering where I am on a downwind run mm-hmm. because I'm just looking down and just thinking, wow, this is incredible. Look at that flying fish that's going past. Oh, there's a turtle. Like I saw a turtle in Australia, in Sydney the other day. What the hell? But like the, the flow state for me is being able to just, yeah, we all, we all here, be in the moment and just, you know, lose all that, that thinking, but we don't have an opportunity to connect with ourselves arguably at all through our busy lives because we're so rushed to bust on other people's schedule. We've got our devices in our faces. There's so much going on that being able to plan scheduled time with yourself to do something which you love and enjoy and that you know that you have the potential of finding flow state, I think that we all need to incorporate that into our lives. The way that I have started to look at flow states, and I don't like... I think we need different names for different flow states. But the way that I look at it on on a broad level is that, you know, I think that when we are born, we are overwhelmed with information. And we become very good at creating batch processes to handle our daily routines. And so as we become older, the majority of our day is just run from these programs that we create that make toast and 
talk on Zoom calls, handle work, even parenting or whatever. We just become really good at doing them. And so we don't actually need to let a lot of the, you know, real world stimulus in because it's just, it's more demanding on the re on our, you know, our limited resources in our brain. And when I think of flow states, I think of situations that are too complex or consequential to run on those programs. And so the aperture, I think of it like a camera lens and the aperture of reality broadens and gets really wide. And I think that it is relative to the risk, difficulty, consequence, whatever that is of the situation. And we're capable of taking in I feel like that's the reason why time seems to slow down in those moments is because we're actually processing at a much higher level than we do on a normal day. I think it's why time seems to slow down or speed up, I guess, as we get older, because we're really not present for much of the day. And I think that the moments of flow state are when at least deeply, you know, the aperture is wide because full presence is needed. And you know, alpha brain waves are through the roof. And how does that definition sound to you? It resonates a lot, Eric. And I want to ask you a question. Do you think that time speeds up as we're getting older? I 100% agree with you. Mm -hmm. Would you say that if we were able to maintain presence and be in a flow state longer, that time would slow back down as we get older? So if we're getting really meta metaphysical, I'm not sure because I think there's two things. <laughs> play. One, I think that the aperture allows more information and the feeling of time to slow. But then the other is we're basically a hard drive. And so each year is a smaller percentage of your drive. You know, your first day is an eternity because you don't have anything there yet. And then your first year and the second year is 50% of your life and the third is 33. And now you're up in your 40s and it's, you know, what is mm. it? 2.5% of your life? I don't get bad at math here, but <laughs> whatever that is. And so I think it depends on which lens you look at that through. I don't know. How do you relate to that? Yeah. I love the definition that you use on and the framing there of an aperture because it's such a beautiful way to, to talk about it because it's very, if you're a photographer, then you know all about it. Like the more light you let in, the more exposure that you have and the more you will have to process and the speed at which you're going to have to do that is, is faster. I love that. But I also think we are having a harder time slowing down and we're having a harder time feeling, oh, it's speeding up as I get older because I believe that the world is just asking so much more from us every arguably year, but definitely every generation. We're getting more and more demands. Everyone wants everything yesterday. Everyone wants you to do their thing first and prioritize them. And we are conditioned to put ourselves last. And you spoke earlier around that idea of the programming that we are showed. And I, I believe that if we're inherently applying negative patterns and behaviors, then we're obviously going to be going down a pretty dark rabbit hole around what we shouldn't necessarily be doing as behavior. And we need to move back to ourselves and come back to ourselves by putting down our devices, but also using nature and the outdoors as a way of disconnecting and reconnecting 
disconnecting with the negative things that are happening in your life, but also reconnecting with yourself and those things that you hold dear to yourself. And I know that a lot of us and your listeners are holding foiling as dear to ourselves. It's just around fitting that in around our, our partners and families and everyone else so that we don't get hung out to dry, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is going to be a deep one. I wonder how, you know, if people are listening right now, please let us know what you guys think about this conversation. And I mean, I thoroughly enjoy this. I hope other people are as well. The- Can we just talk about that for a second? What's that? Like that level of depth. Yeah. Because there's, I think there's a note there. Often we are like bubbling along at this quite superficial level in society. And I even find myself having conversations with friends that are, you know, very top level and it's not getting into depth. And as I get older, I'm yearning for that connection and that genuine depth in connection and conversation that isn't just your average Joe, but you're actually able to have not just intellectual conversations, but conversations of emotion. And as as blokes, I think in particular, we're terrible at talking about our feelings. And I'm in the business of talking about my feelings and I've become quite comfortable in doing that over the last 12 years, but it hasn't come easy for me. But I've noticed a big disconnect with what I find comfortable and what society feels is comfortable and acceptable. So it's almost like we need to do more of this to allow us to really connect with one another and realize that we're not actually dealing with things alone. We're dealing with the same shit that everyone is, but we just don't talk about it. I think you're a hundred percent right on that. I actually find that I'm somewhat allergic to small talk. I have a very difficult time doing it <laughs> within about two minutes of small talk. I'm just surfing in my mind or designing a board or, but I have a, like one of the most beautiful things about having done, you know, I don't even know how many hundred, 200, some odd episodes of podcasts. And I realized that my favorite conversations of the week were the podcasts, right? Because you got to actually really get deep with someone. And I felt like I knew these, you know, folks that were on the show, like, as well as some people that I hang out with all the time, because, you know, you're having this conversation where the expectation going in is that it's going to be a real conversation and you're going to get somewhere with it. And then it was probably about two years ago, I just made a decision that all conversations were going to be like that. So if we're out at dinner, you know, like I, I don't, it's not like it's a podcast or anything like that, but I try to have real conversations and, and ask real questions and, and engage. And it's been beautiful in what it has done for friendships with family. I mean, all over the place, you know, like looking at it in a different way. It's been a very cool thing. One of the things I love about you, Eric, is that you're very introspective. And the way that you've asked questions over the years has been just very thought out. But I think what's also worth calling out is that many of your listeners probably aren't aware of the fact that these conversations aren't done via video. And when you said that to me the other day, I thought, that's amazing. Because I am so conditioned to want to connect with people and see that video connection that it does genuinely take away from what's possible in the conversation and flow and meaning, doesn't it? I mean, how do you feel doing it without video right now? It feels different because I would love to be able to see you and to, I'm a big like nonverbal communicator and body language expressions and everything is something that I thrive on. 
but that's I think that's being a therapist and wanting to get that feedback as to understand what your current sort of feelings are. But it does feel different, but it feels amazing because I'm not looking at you waiting to stop talking and then going, okay, it's my turn to talk. I'm more immersing in what you're saying, which means it's taking me to a different place and it's allowing me to let those things land a lot more. Yeah. That started, shoot. I mean, at the beginning I started doing podcasts in Costa Rica and video wasn't an option because internet wasn't good enough. And this was six or seven years ago. And I also found that some of my best conversations with friends were over the phone. And I think that's because there's not an expectation, maybe the lack of the visual and the feedback from body language doesn't shape the conversation and it can be more introspective. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it. Well, if you're, I'm sitting here and I'm staring off to the wall, I'm looking at this beautiful artwork on the wall in the podcast studio at work and I would be so focused on you. I'd be sitting up straight. I wouldn't be comfortable because I'm trying to be present for you. Sitting back in almost like a lounge chair now, and I'm having this opportunity to just feel so relaxed to just be here and be with you and nothing else is happening around me. Yeah. I mean, that's the way that I feel on them too. And maybe it's a selfish thing that I do it for because I feel like I can get lost in the conversation more without the you know, camera looking at you the whole time you know, thinking, oh, am I looking stupid right now? Or whatever that is, right? Like it takes away some of the self-consciousness from a conversation. And, you know, with Zoom and all this now, you know, everybody's always, (laughs) I feel like most people just look at themselves the whole time, which is probably not healthy either. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of no mirrors. I've got no mirrors behind my my revision mirrors in my car. Should I say the flap down? What do you call them? <laughs> the visors. Yeah. And I love it. I pull it down. I'm like, oh, that's right. That's not there. And it's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. also a really interesting point you bring up because if we are so worried about how we are being perceived visually, then that's going to completely impact the way that we will learn about something, we'll take risks and dive into an opportunity. And maybe let's use foiling as, a, as an example of that. If you're so focused on what you look like that you don't want to mess up if you don't want to make a mistake or you can't go foiling in this location because you'll look silly. Like that I think is what conditioning of social media has done to us. And it's really framed this judgment on ourselves as well. Yeah. I mean, let's dive into social media right now. And this is a conversation I want to have more over I don't know, the next six months or so, I have some folks coming on and we're talking about having this conversation, but it'd be a good time to start it now. And that is, I mean, I am incredibly grateful for the community of foiling that has really coalesced around Instagram, right? And I think that it's a very healthy, beautiful thing. I love the Instagram foil community. It's where, you know, I spend most of my internet time is talking to other people about foiling on Instagram DMs. And I also think it's talking about the positives right now, that it has been an incredible thing to fuel the growth. I mean, if you look at how quickly foiling has evolved over the last really, I mean, Kai said it on the show, it was really only five or six years ago that he had the video that sparked this whole thing. We have been able to evolve gear, technique, at a level that I've never seen before in in sport, really. If you think about what people were doing five years ago and what people are doing now, I mean, 
that is insane. Think about what happened in surfing, like how long it took surfing. Now we got to build on the back of all these other board sports. And I mean, there's a lot of arguments that you could make there, but Instagram specifically for showcasing, you know, Kai does something in Hawaii and I don't know, whoever in Australia can see it that afternoon and go out and know that's possible and then try. And that is a beautiful thing. But at the same token, what you were saying there, the, you know, self-consciousness of people who aren't at the level, maybe not wanting to share, not wanting to be a part of the community because the level isn't there, or maybe even, I wouldn't say more important, but the fact that everyone is now trying to get the views and the likes it is probably shaping our sport towards different maneuvers or styles or waves that it wouldn't be because you're trying to garner attention from this crew and probably trying to surf towards goals that are external goals, not internal goals. That's what my buddy Josh Waitskin talks about all the time. He's a brilliant dude. You know, external validation, external goals rather than being true to yourself. And, in, you know, some of the masters will probably come out of places where, you know, they haven't, we've never seen a post from them before. And then they just show up and they're doing something completely new because they haven't had the influence. I'm sorry that was so long. Yeah. But, you know, those are just some initial thoughts on the social media shaping our landscape. Oh, don't be sorry. You're speaking gold. The accessibility of content alone has not only exponentially scaled at a rapid rate the ability of people but it's also magnified talent in places in the world that you would otherwise never find it so if kai can put content out there that's a banger and that afternoon i can watch it and then go holy hell let's try that behind the boat first or a person in costa rica can see it with limited internet and say oh wow that's pretty cool i'm gonna try that they might try it, nail it, and then share it with a hashtag or someone might see it in that beautiful foiling community that we have. And then there is far more talent than just the outliers. What I love what Kai said the other day with you around feeling like he has to always put out content that is cutting edge. And if he's not, then his viewers are going to think, you know, you've lost touch. And that pressure that external validation is so true and that's what's happening in social media but it's also pushing us to do beautiful things so we've got to take the good and the bad and we can talk for hours about the negative impacts of social media and the importance of putting down our phone and getting out there and having rip around but we are and i know you are and i are very grateful for what foiling has done for us because of social media and it's only because of social media that we now know each other it's only because of social media that we're seeing all these really beautiful things happen around the world where you think, okay, so even if that is external validation that person has done to put that up, that's sweet. And I'm going to give it to them because let's give props where props is due and help build each other up to be positive around that supportive community rather than cutting people down, which you often see with keyboard warriors that just get on a vendetta to just throw shade at people no matter what. And that idea of hiding behind a keyboard is something which really bugs me. And it's a huge issue in the mental health world. But when it comes to our community, I'm so impressed and proud to be a part of a community that is so accepting, is so welcoming, but it also is so progressive in that we are the pioneers who 
have said, I'm certainly not one of the front pioneers, Kai is, and the likes of you and all the work you're doing with Unifoil, for example, like you are on the front foot of progression innovation, which is going to change the game for many more people in years to come. So it's almost this legacy, which you're positively contributing toward. And this is, sorry, this is going to be a little convoluted, but I got really heavy into the website Facebook when it first came out because I was running a business in Costa Rica in a very small town and it was a pretty it was a big fish in a small town and it was round surfing and real estate and I got to experience the other side of the keyboard warrior because some people didn't appreciate the success or possible changes that were happening to the town. And I mean, it was probably a year when we had, I don't know, 25,000 fans on Facebook, but it was probably a year where every day when I would wake up, it was like, what's the negative comment going to be today? Or what's the, you know, and it was literally every day that I was dealing with this from a few key actors who were the people that would never confront you to your face. You knew who they were. And they would chirp away at their keyboard, but then they would never, you know, say anything to you. And at one point, I just got completely off of social media. I just was like, this is just ridiculous. This is taking away from my, you know, happiness. And I don't feel like dealing with this anymore. So I, I made a distinction that who I was as a person and for business were going to be two separate entities. And I've lived by that throughout. So if you like look at my Instagram feed at this point, it's not family. It's not really who I am. It's... I have an initiative that I love foiling. I want to help progress the sport and that's what it's about. And so I've just compartmentalized and I feel like for me, that's been a good way to handle it where I have like my real life and then I have the online foiling life and the two are somewhat separate. Have you made any strategic decisions about the way that you handle social media from a personal versus a business perspective? Do you differentiate between the two? How do you see that? hundred percent. Everything you just said, preach brother. <laughs> it's I, I, like, you, you might look at my Instagram and think this guy is an absolute frother. He loves life and everything's honky dory. But if I'm honest, I have an absolute love hate relationship with social media. I love that it brings people together. It's helped us build a global movement in multiple business ventures. It's helped me provide, I guess, like inspiration to people in places who would never, ever see this content otherwise around how we can actually deal with mental health and the surfing stuff. But at the same time, it does my head in when someone says to me, oh, you look like you're killing it at the moment. Your life looks amazing. In what world is social media an opportunity and an avenue to make that significant judgment on someone and their mental state and their performance and ability based upon just what you're seeing on that one-dimensional feed. And often I'll say, don't judge a book by its cover or, you know, you don't necessarily know what's going on if you look at someone's feed and I'll try and be you know, supportive and educational about it. But it just really pisses me off because I might be so stressed out with work I might be seeing the 14th downwinder in the last two weeks go on and all the boys are just loving it and the WhatsApp chats are going nuts. And I feel this amazing sense of FOMO because 
I can't be there. I'm stressed out. I got a lot of stuff on my plate and yeah, you know, work's just going through that, that motions at the moment. That's okay. It's a, it's seasons of life, right? But if someone says to me at that time, when I'm experiencing that and feeling that sense of gloom and, oh, can't I just get to the beach? I want to get in one of those downwind. It's really detrimental to cast judgment upon someone when you can't see behind the curtain. And often the response that I get is, oh, sorry, I didn't realize that. That's actually a really valuable point. And I hope that it actually resonates with some listeners around like, okay, we probably shouldn't do that. I probably shouldn't say to someone that you look like you're killing it <laughs> because I can bet your ass that 98% of people are not killing it. And they're just pretending they are because they want to put on that front because they feel like they have to do that because everyone's doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, what you on social media is probably the best snippet of the last five, 10 day, whatever it is of, because no one's posting you know, the downloads. And I don't think that there's a way necessarily to change that because, you know, no one wants to showcase those things. And yeah, I think that understanding social media and putting it in its place and utilizing it for the things that are absolutely brilliant about it, and then being able to separate out the negative is an incredibly powerful thing. It's probably a lot easier said than done, but you know, it's something that I've always tried to do or at least since I went through the, I saw the evils of it up close and personal for a while. Yeah. It, um, I remember seeing an advertisement on TV a, a bunch of years ago and it, it has stayed with me so vividly. And it was this guy and a girl crossing the road and they were, he was looking for directions and she got to the sidewalk and he asked her, oh, where can I go? And then they fast forwarded so rapidly that he showed her directions. They went and got coffee. They then went on another date. They went and had their engagement. They got married. They had a baby. They got, they grew old together. And it was all because they were not on their phones. Now that's then juxtaposed in the next scene by them walking towards each other in the exact same scene, but then they're looking down at their phones and they walk straight past each other. Wow. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, like, that is so amazing. I'm going to dig it up and try and send it to you, Eric. But it, it's one of those primary examples of we need to get our heads out of these silly little things and connect with the people around us so we can actually enjoy our lives. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's nothing really to add to that. I completely agree. I think it's one of the most beautiful things about the ocean is that it's forced disconnection, you know, like what you said before about the breakwater and you know, the barrier. Let's, uh, let's dive into foiling a little bit before we do. I have some final questions I like to do, but what are you riding? What do you love in gear right now and feels? I'm on the unifoil gear and I love it, but I've got my sights set on the Viper, which I haven't rode yet. And I'm just so excited to get more high performance maneuverability on the wave face. I'm riding a 170, 190 and 210 hypers and they're all for different conditions and go ahead. The older hypers or the newer ones? The older ones. I'm going to be getting a hyper too soon, hopefully, and I'll never look back. <laughs> but it's the efficiency side of things. Your froth level is about to go through the roof. I mean, this, Mate, 100%. It's going to be so Mate. My my friends call me Captain Froth a lot, and <laughs> that's because I'm just so excited about it. I just get so stoked on and the little things. But, mate, as soon as I see a Hyper 2, I'm not going to come in for about 12 hours, I reckon. 
That's awesome. And I see the pick of the JS there. You still riding? That's a good board. I like that board. Yeah, that's so good. I, I haven't got the new one that the guys are running with the swallow the tail that like brings the tail in so you can do more carving. But my my foiling style is wanting to try and stay on foil for a, a bit longer. So obviously the hyper and the high aspect stuff is great. But then once you get onto the wave, I want to be able to turn it over and really roll over your turns, utilize the swing weight. And I've been practicing like re-entries on whitewater. And I just love that feeling of being able to disconnect and release and then come back in and, and land it and think, wow, like what would be possible on this new gear that I'm going to be touching real soon? Yeah. I mean, if you're banging foam on hyper ones, you're going to be so stoked when you get to something a little bit looser. The Viper's great for that too. Yeah. Probably a Viper 150. That's my favorite Viper. Well, I can't wait to try the progression. Uh, yeah. Hopefully soon. All right. Let's do these questions. I think these are going to be great today. How do you define success? I love these rapid fire questions that you do. Success for me, I haven't thought about this. I often will draw a symbiosis between success and happiness because I think deep down success is being genuinely happy in my mind. Being able to have control over your own schedule, routine, lifestyle, patterns, behaviors, relationships, having this sense of control where you are in the driver's seat, being able to make the decisions that allow you to move further towards those times in your life that you can vibrate at that high frequency and just be stoked and happy and be exactly where you need to be at that time. So I, I think success in a bigger sense for me is around being able to have a legacy, which is being able to make a dent on an industry being mental health and wellbeing for me that there's a lot of work to be done and the amount of waves that i've seen happen from those small ripples over the last 10 or 12 years has been really special but i think success is being able to scale something effectively and efficiently to the masses to be able to create a major movement to create major social change you touched on it there but would you like to add anything to the definition of happiness it's a feeling that you can't really talk about to the extent that you want. It's a, a warmth and it's a feeling of calm, of satisfaction, of gratitude. I'm big on gratitude. And just before we caught up, my 12 o'clock alarm went off and every day my gratitude alarm goes off. And I think that having a gratitude practice around what's that one thing today that I'm grateful for brings you out of whatever positive, potential negative pattern, should I say, that you might be experiencing at that time. So happiness is all of those things, but I think gratitude can really set you up for a great path towards happiness. I love that. We're big on gratitude in our family. You might've heard about it if you listen to the show, but five years ago, mm -hmm. we found that my wife, she was sick for a while. We couldn't figure it out. Finally figured it out. She almost died. She had a massive brain tumor and miraculously mm -hmm. got through the surgery, but now is hugely pill dependent. She's had this incredible recovery or brain was on the cover of a, that's my beagle, was on the cover of a neuro magazine because of how she recovered after proton radiation, which is just incredible. And we were probably light on gratitude before that. But after that, it's, you know, we play the grateful game before any family dinner. Everybody just has to go around and say some things they're grateful for. And my wife, who's the most inspirational person I've ever met, she's pretty wild living with your hero for someone to have gone through what she's gone through. And never questioned that the outcome was going to be amazing against really 
not the greatest odds, probably. But she has to take an inordinate amount of pills just to stay alive. And if she doesn't have her pills because she lost complete like pituitary function in the surgery, she like she has, I think, like 48 hours to live if (laughs) she forgets her pills. It's really a scary place to be. But every week she has to fill up like all these pill boxes with everything she has to take. And she sits there and she just every pill she puts in, she just says something that's great. She does it to herself, but that, that she's grateful for. And it's really amazing to live with someone like that who like leads by example, never talks about it, but it's hard to hold you to, to your best self because, you know, how can you not when you're around that all the time? And I just think that's such a beautiful thing, like being able to be grateful, even when things are really hard. And that's where we were like five years ago, like really helped through the process. And so if you're not looking into that, something pretty powerful. That's a pretty special story. I knew some of that, not all of it. But I love that every time a pill goes into the mouth. There's, I've used a gratitude jar in the past and you do one every day for 365 and then you open it up and you're like, wow, that happened, that happened. You just have such an amazing feeling. Yeah. But I also think genuine happiness is also having a really great relationship with yourself because a lot of people don't have good self-esteem and obviously negative self-talk is out there a lot. But if you can genuinely have a conversation in the mirror with yourself and give yourself a compliment and speak to yourself in the same esteem that you would to people around you, then that's the dream. I remember I did a a stand-up paddle challenge for for mental health and I I paddled 220 kilometers around Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne. And I had the most beautiful conversations with Shane, the absolute weapon paddler I did it with. And it was 18 hours of paddling on water a day. And we just dived into the most beautiful conversations and connection. And a lot of it stemmed back to that idea of being able to have a good relationship with yourself and how to build that on how to, you know, when I told you that story before about me jumping into the water every day and I'm making sure I open my eyes under a green wave, I will come up and I will actually out loud be talking to myself. And more often than not, I'm like, Ew, how good is this? Oh my God, how good is life? And that's why people call me the frother. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it's around that sense of self and being able to give yourself kudos and treat yourself like you would to anyone else. And that's probably a lot harder to do for you know, high performers who are very self-critical and holding themselves to very high levels. What motivates you right now? What motivates me? I often say what makes you mad, glad, and sad. And often that will be something that you can draw a lot of motivation from. So take that as you will and play that game in your own mind. What makes you mad? What makes you so furious that you just like, or what makes you super sad? And what makes you really upset around what that thing is? And then what is it that really makes you glad? For me, that is where motivation comes from. And one of the things that makes me, I guess, feel that the most is I am really motivated to create like really positive change in that space of mental health and wellbeing because I know what it's done for my own mental health and someone who's been through the ringer and had some pretty shit times in my life, I have been able to use surfing in the outdoors, being an adventurous waterman kind of spirit to then be able to take me to some pretty cool places. And that's what excites me to be able to share my passion that I don't take for granted any longer 
to be able to inspire other people to step outside of the norm and try things that are different. And whether that's going for a surf for the first time or jumping in the water for 365 days, or this morning we had 150 people on Bondi Beach doing ice baths as a fundraiser for Waves Wellness Foundation. You know, whatever it is, that motivates me to inspire other people to do more stuff to promote their own well-being. What is your favorite marine animal? And what's your best story? You said you saw a turtle off Sydney, but are turtles your favorite? What's your favorite? What's your favorite story? I, again, I have a love-hate relationship with a lot of things, but flying fish fascinate me. And I've been a kite surfer for years and before foiling. I was on the Slingshot Australia team back when I was 16 to 18, not vibes. And that was a time where I did some amazing travel. I think when I was 20 years old, I went to Tahiti with the Australian Slingshot team and we went and did this amazing kite surfing adventure over there. There was pumping waves on Marea. Hapiti was like the little baby brother to, to Chopes. And we're out there surfing. And I remember one of these flying fish that you see, you know, hammering down the water. It came and it actually went super close to making me not be able to have kids let's just put it that way smashing me in the nuts basically and it, that's why i have a love-hate relation because i love them i'm fascinated by how the hell does a fish fly but please don't come near my manhood because that was super close <laughs> that was actually the same day that i i it was probably what six to eight foot out harpiti I, I had to dump my kite and almost had a near-death experience myself so the, there's plenty of memories around that trip but the flying fish around the marine animal question would definitely be the one i reckon you can't drop that about that story and not give it to us now. Oh, it took me back there just then. Actually, it was pretty loose. I remember I, I had to download my kite when I was on a wave because one of the boys was coming back out and a wind shadow came and just fully dropped it out of the sky. And usually that's fine when it's a couple of feet, but when it's a big day and we're talking like Hawaiian kind of vibe, it was super touch and go. And I remember being dragged underwater for what felt like 40 meters and I came up gasping for air and ended up having to, I had one of the old decline harnesses, which, um, which has a knife in it and it's a hook knife. So you can pull it out of the Velcro and you can chuck it over the top and actually knife your way out of the lines. And I only had one left at that time because the others had all quick released and I ended up cutting away and I never saw, no, I, I saw my lines before, after that, but my kite was destroyed. And I actually got sucked out to see. They've got these amazing passages in Tahiti, in, in Fiji, where the water rushes over the reef and then it has to go somewhere. So it comes to shore, does this back eddy, and then heads out the passages. And if it's the wrong tide, it is just motoring out to sea. And we we should have had better backup back then, but we had this little dinghy and they ended up having to come hundreds of meters out the passage in the deep ocean to pick me up because I just got sucked straight out and there was no chance. So like those are the sorts of things where you think, you know, we definitely need to make sure that we're doing things in a safe way as we keep on trying to push the envelope in these you know, adventurous sports. But again, you need to have the ability, like we talked about earlier, to know that you can deal with that situation if things go to shit. What do you do in those situations to calm yourself down. I mean, fear is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you when you are in one of those situations. It's almost like you wish you could play yourself as a video game and take fear away because, you know, lower your heart rate and make better decisions and the whole thing. What are you doing in those situations to stay present and 
non-reactive. Speak of flow state, if I'm in one of those situations, I'm completely in flow, but maybe it's not the positive version, but there's nothing else that I'm thinking about other than just super methodical, mechanical thinking of what needs to take place right now for me to A, conserve energy, B, put myself in the best chance of alerting someone else. And that's why devices and Apple watches and that sort of thing is golden these days. But it's also, I'm one of those sickos who will run to a car crash or a problem. Or I remember years ago, I had to pull someone out of a car because they'd become unconscious from a seizure. And in that environment, people around me seem to be losing their shit. And I'm just focused. I'm like, all right, we need to break that window. Where's the nearest object we can get in there because the car's locked because it's in drive. So in that ocean environment, it's very similar around, yeah, let's conserve energy. Let's make sure that we're doing things right. But also let's put ourselves in the best situation to not let it get worse. You know, you cut away as soon as possible to make sure that you don't get further drilled in or over the reef. And then you could get huge lacerations if you get pushed around. You know, I've been in cloud break as a lifeguard in Fiji when Aaron Gold went down on that red alert swell. And it was the first wave of the day and he ended up going down and had a three-wave hold down and was completely unconscious and tombstoning. And Ryan Hipwood was in our boat, you know, Greg Long and the boys from Hawaii were in the other boat and they all got him back in this amazing set of circumstances to the boat, cleared the boards and just started resuscitating for about five and a half minutes they were going. But the need for calm thinking and the need for like measure and method in that scenario, there's just no other option. Like you, you, someone else's life is on the line. So you just need to do what you got to do to keep them alive. And whether it's a rescue or a resus or whatever that is, you just have to think about the repercussions later. I love it. It has been an absolute blast to have you on the show. You know, I'm, I'm, it's so incredible that I saw that post and reached out really before knowing any of this about you and then to get to have this conversation a day later is awesome. I mean, that's the beauty of social media right there, right? What? So thank you very much for coming on. And what would you like to leave folks with? It's a pleasure, Eric. I love what you're all about, mate. I've been a big supporter for years. What do I want to leave folks with? That last story and the one we started with, actually, we didn't get to touch on the idea of trauma. And when you witness something that is pretty full on, even if there's a good result that comes from that, there is associated trauma that you will experience. Flashbacks, you know, memories, a whole lot of different stuff. But there's also this element with which people will overlook and it's vicarious trauma. So if you are around a traumatic incident and it doesn't happen to you, you can still take on vicarious trauma vicariously through the word by just being around it. And I think the the part that I want to leave people with is that If you have experienced something in your life that was traumatic, or if you have dealt with poor mental health and struggled in your life, you don't have to be afraid of talking about it and acknowledging it. Talking about lived experience and storytelling is a way of being being able to build connection with the people around us. But in the same vein that a first responder who's gone to a fatal needs to have a clinical debrief, we need to be providing ourselves with the opportunity to clinically debrief from the experiences that we have. And the message is really clear. It's that like you have no idea who is struggling with some really complex stuff all around you in your personal life, like friends and family that are super close to you that you've never, ever had the conversation about that deep level of mental health challenges. So my challenge would be to have a conversation with someone 
that's close to you around this topic and try and challenge yourself to to sit in the uncomfortable but also acknowledge the fact that things aren't great for you and then there are people that will come out of the woodwork that will support you more than you know so in the foiling community alone getting around each other and being able to say yeah come to my local and i'll show you around and you don't know for, from a bar of soap who that person is otherwise that's a connector but let's not stop at connecting there with the people in our lives let's go to that deeper level like you and i are a little bit more comfortable than most blokes talking about so that we can actually make sure that people at the end of the line or should i say at the end of the day aren't feeling that it's the end of the line and that they might be super close to suicide and we could have had an opportunity to change the trajectory of their life Joel, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I am sure that folks are going to really enjoy and give thought. Please send us messages. Let us know what you got out of this. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I know it's a deviation a little bit from a normal, you know, full-on foil talk froth. But And I didn't even know really what we were getting into. And I'm grateful for it. So thank you for sharing this with us. And I hope to get you back on again at some point. I think that there's we could do another... It's getting late here. I want to go hang out with the kids. But I'm sure we could do another hour and a half very easily. 100%. Mate, sign me up. I love it. Mate, I love what you're all about. I really appreciate the time and energy you put into allowing so many of us around the world to progress in that that foiling world. And the, the scientific approach that you have to it is so helpful. So keep up the great work, mate. And I actually can't wait to get a foiling together. Yeah, I got to get over there. That's on my to-do list in short order. Go foil with you and ja, everybody. It'd be awesome. Brilliant. Take care, mate. It's been a pleasure. This is the Progression Project Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen.